Second Peter chapter one, verses one through seven, written by the Apostle Peter, a bondservant of Christ. And he writes here in Second Peter chapter one, verses one through seven. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Today, once again, and my gratitude is to uh, James Barbalitos, our pastor of student ministries, who has been holding down the fort, so to speak, and he will open the word of God this morning to us. James. Well, good morning once again. Uh, it is definitely uh, wonderful to have the Ugana team back. It's great to have uh, Pastor Joe back. It's certainly been quiet at the office, and so it's nice to uh, have somebody to talk to, knock on the wall, and see how everything's going. So you know, we're blessed to have you back. Um, but yes, uh, well, uh, the 4th of July is over. Um, as I recall, actually last year I, I preached on the Sunday after the 4th of July, and, and I love the 4th of July, you know, especially being an American. Um, it's one of the classic holidays. For me, it kind of uh, signifies summertime, especially when I was uh, a young student in elementary school and in, into high school, um, because by uh, the 4th of July, typically summer was in uh, full swing. You know, I'd be trying to go golfing with my dad or barbecuing or uh, doing my summer job or whatever it is, but uh, it's always a, a kind of a, a big signature day, and, and the Lord blesses us with some decent weather. You know, usually when I tell people about the weather in Seattle, I say, well, it usually rains until the 4th of July. And then after the 4th of July, it's usually nice. Um, but last, uh, last night, it was, uh, it was a beautiful day. And so we praise God for that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, also with the 4th of July, I'm also reminded about just... You know, the privileges that God has given us in this country. Uh, we, we read in Scripture about um, a thing called common grace, which uh, we see in Scripture that God causes the, the rain, the fall, and the just and the unjust alike. But, you know, the freedoms we have in this country are also another form of common grace. Uh, grace has been given to believers to study God's Word, to worship freely, um, to preach the gospel in public, to come to church. Um, and that's a common grace that all people in America have. And so uh, people don't realize that because many Many people in foreign countries, uh, they don't have that privilege. They don't even have Bibles. They, don't have, um, they can't meet in open churches. They have to meet underground. And so I'm just reminded of the grace that God has given us um, in this country. Yesterday, my wife and I and uh, my mother-in-law was in town. Uh, we went down to the uh, Kirkland Fourth of July parade. And I was just amazed. There was just thousands of people. And we were able to hand out a number of gospel tracts and stuff. And I, and I was just really convicted because as people celebrate the freedoms of this country, uh, which is a great thing, I just... my my heart was kind of wrenched in the sense that I'm seeing these people uh, celebrate freedom, and yet I just wondered how many of them are still slaves to their sin, not knowing that um, the freedom that we have in this country is nothing compared to the freedom of sin. And so I just want to encourage you, just in thinking about the 4th of July, um, of, of all the sacrifices that uh, our soldiers have done for this country and the men that have went before us to give us that, that we also remember that the, uh, the sacrifice that God did through our, His Son, um, and that we use the freedoms that God has given us to proclaim His name. Don't be ashamed to share God's word at work or in school. Um, you know, go to the park and read the Bible freely because we can in this country. Um, because many around the world don't have those freedoms. And, and use what God has given you uh, to proclaim his name. And so that was us yesterday. We had a good time. I'm glad I put sunscreen on because it was hot. And uh, don't quite have as much hair as I used to, so i got to protect what I have. Um, but it was great. And I hope you had a, a safe and fun 4th of July. 
Well, this morning uh, we have the privilege of, of uh, entering back into Second Peter. We've been, uh, we began the book a couple weeks ago and we're continuing through the first chapter now. And as I mentioned, Second Peter is rich in practical theology. It's, it's, it's rich in, in ways to, in, in theology and instruction on how you can live the Christian life practically. It's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. And as we saw the first week, we talked about the blessings that we have through faith in Christ, peace and righteousness and grace. And last week we, we talked about um, how through the power of God we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing that you can't do. There's nothing that's stopping you from living a godly life that you don't have the power to overcome. And the book of Second Peter uh, was written by Simon Peter, and we've looked at the kind of man that Simon Peter was. The spiritual journey that he, he uh, started from, being a fisherman in Galilee, all the way to now writing this letter from a prison in Rome. And he kind of writes a final instruction here, because he knows that he's going to die soon. And so he, he, he's concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church. He, he wants the believers of the early church to grow spiritually. He knows what's at stake. At that point in time, the church wasn't like it is today. It wasn't on every continent. It wasn't in all the different countries. But it was, it was a, 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 a small movement made up of thousands at this point in time. It was still small and persecution was hitting the church. And so he was concerned about their growth. Him, just like the other apostles, they, they were concerned about false teaching infiltrating the church. And it was already occurring. And so they're writing to give instruction on how you can tell the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. How you can tell the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian. And this morning we're going we're gonna to look at what, what the characteristics, what is the quality of a true Christian? How are we to, to distinguish a true Christian from a false Christian? But more importantly, how are you to grow uh, in, in the character of a Christian? Because if you are a Christian, then, then you want to grow into uh, the character and qualities that God has called you into. In fact, that is a way we can tell the difference between a, a true Christian and a false Christian. Because, as you know, lots of people call themselves Christians today, but they don't live and grow spiritually. Because just having the name Christian does not make you a Christian, as, as we all well know. And so this morning, Peter continues in his instruction, and he, he gives us some good insight on what it means to grow as a Christian, to grow in your character as a Christian. And as I mentioned last week, he, uh, Peter uh, instructed us that God has equipped all believers, that you are to trust in the sufficiency of salvation. Your salvation and God's word is all you need to be able to live a, a righteous and godly life. Sure, there's tools out in the world that can help us, but ultimately our source of authority, our source of instruction, comes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and His Word, His inspired Word, which we have in Scripture. And so this morning, he kind of moves from um, the the truth that you have been equipped and that you have these tools. This morning, as we see, he's going to move to, now that you have these tools, what are you supposed to use them for? How are you supposed to use them? How are we supposed to use these spiritual tools? Because the thing is, I mean, we can be honest with ourselves. If you're a Christian, there's many people who desire to grow spiritually, and that's a good thing. But oftentimes, it, you know, to become a mature or strong Christian, you might not know where to start. Right? If somebody were to come up to you, if you're a Christian, and say, Hey, um, look, I'm looking for some answers. Where, where can I go to? What do I need to do to become a mature Christian? I mean, what are some of the answers you might give them? Right? And I can magically, not magically, that's not biblical, but I can see into your brains and, oh, you know, read the Bible or uh, go to church. Or, you know, you're thinking of the general stuff, but if the person's like, okay, well, that's great, I know, but I want specifics, what would you say? How is one to live a godly life? That's an important question to ask. Because if you're a Christian, that should be a desire of your heart. Well, through Scripture, we know that God has given you tools. And ability, but just because you have tools and ability does not mean that you'll know how to use them right away. Just like normal tools now. For instance, if I go into my dad's garage, there's a number of tools that I haven't the faintest idea how to use. They look cool, and I'm like, wow, look at that thing. But if I tried to use it, I would either break something or hurt myself. Right? To use tools effectively, you must learn how to use them. And the more that you use them, the more proficient you are at using them. I mean, sure, as men, we often want to try to just wing it and not read the instructions. Fortunately, that's in our nature. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't work, and the repercussions can sometimes be bad. And tools are most effective when they're used by people who are trained. Right? That's why when you have a major plumbing problem or a major wiring or some sort of thing in your house, you, you can't just depend on your own knowledge. You, you call somebody who's uh, been trained in that. You call a plumber. You call an electrician, hopefully. 
Why do you do that? Because you know they've been trained. They know how to use the tools. They know how to assess the problem and hopefully um, fix it. So now this morning, Peter instructs us on how or what we're supposed to use our tools for. Right? He, he's teaching us, okay, this is how you train yourself to use these tools. So that the more often you use them and the more you, you train, the better you will be able to use them and the more spiritually mature you will become. And the tools that he is talking about, as we'll see, are, are what we discussed last week. You know, provision, power, and promise. So from this passage, we'll be spending our time in verses, seven through, uh, verses 5 through 7 this morning. Um, I want to give you seven qualities to add to your faith so that you will grow in Christian character. Seven qualities to add to your Christian faith so that you will grow in Christian character. And I hope that you can kind of see Peter's train of thought here, his flow. He's, he began and said, okay, you have faith, and because you have faith, um, you have blessings. But along with your faith, you also have these tools. God has given you everything you need. You're equipped to do any job and any task. And so from here, now he's moving and, and, be, and you have these tools, so this is how you're supposed to use them. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How are you to use your tools? And these are spiritual tools, and they're meant to develop you as a Christian, Christian character. What does Christian character look like? I mean, many of you I know, you, you've attended church for a number of years. Uh, the idea of Christian character is not anything new to you. You have some sort of idea. But if someone were to ask you about the specifics, what would you say? You know, okay, spend time in prayer. Well, that's good. Read your Bible. That's good. But th- where does it end? Or does it continue there? Well, thankfully, God's Word is not hidden about these kind of things. He's very specific on how He wants you to live and how He wants you to grow in character. In fact, this morning, Peter gives us uh, a comprehensive list, and it's, it's, almost a, it's the second longest list we find in Scripture on what a Christian is to be. Because his desire is for you to grow as a Christian. And if you're not growing in these kind of things, it might be an indicator that uh, you're either, uh, you need some work to do, or you might not even be a Christian at all. If you don't have any desire to, to grow in the things that we discussed this morning, you know, I'd exer- I, I would just encourage you to examine your heart and to see if your motives are in the right place. So he begins in Second Peter verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He begins and he says, for this very reason. What reason is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the things that he was just discussing. That God has equipped you for everything you need for life and godliness. So, in other words, what he's saying is, because God has given you the tools, for that very reason, let's use them. Let's use them for his glory. Let's grow in Christian character. And he says, make every effort to supplement faith. Faith is a must. He starts with the premise that in order to even grow in Christian character, you must be a Christian. And the top blank there, I've listed a number of blanks on that line, but the top one is faith. Because it's from faith that all these characteristics are going to flow. It's from faith that our Christian characteristics, our our, our spiritual maturity, uh, that's the foundation of them, is faith. If you don't have that, then it's worthless. Because many appear to be godly. Many appear to be good people and, and call themselves Christians. But they don't really have faith. And although they might do good things, they might serve the community or, or uh, you know, do, you know, even go on the foreign field to help out uh, um, missionaries or they might help out the poor. Those are all well and good, but if they're not doing them because of their faith, then it's worthless. Because ultimately then they're just doing them for themselves. They're doing it to feel good, to think that they, they contributed their part to the world's better good or the global community. But in the end, it's worthless. Why is it worthless? Because Scripture tells us clearly that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, certainly those actions might have some worth uh, on a practical level, you know, serving people. But on a spiritual level, they're not gaining you any favor with God. The writer of of Hebrews makes this clear. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, speaking of God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you don't even believe God exists, you can't expect to think that everything that you're doing is going to please Him or do anything. 
So Peter starts with this premise and says, before you can even add all these Christian characteristics, you must first be a Christian. And to become a Christian, you must have faith. You must have faith. But it doesn't stop with faith. Having faith is, is a great thing. It is the best thing. But from faith, as a Christian, you are to grow. And so Peter, beginning in verse 5, he says, to faith you are to add or supplement. Um, and in the Greek here, it, it's an imperative. And it, it means to, to generously contribute to something, to cooperate towards a cause. It means that you, you, you want to come alongside something and, and, and contribute as much as possible so that the needs are met. Right? And it kind of gives the idea of someone contributing to like a, a banquet or, uh, or something where you know, they're not necessarily the main cause, but they're a part of the support. And so they're, they're contributing to whatever is the food or the clothing or the housing. You know? and, and, it's, and it's generously uh, contributing. It's not the idea of adding like a pinch of salt. It's generously um, contributing. It makes me kind of think honestly of the food ministry that we have here at LHBC. It's wonderful, right? If you stay after, if you're a visitor, or if not, I encourage you to stay after. If you come, you're going to see that we don't just have uh, some watered-down juice and some stale crackers. Okay? Our, 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 uh, our food ministry, our fellowship ministry goes above and beyond. Uh, we have wonderful food, and you know, every week it's plenty enough for everyone. That's the kind of contributing that Peter's talking about. It's going above and beyond so that the needs are met. That's how we're to add these following characteristics. And the first, and the first one is virtue. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What is virtue? It's a word we use maybe every now and then, but it's not a common word. In this instance, it's talking about moral goodness or excellence. In fact, the same word is used just a few verses earlier in verse 3, and it's referring to Christ, Christ's moral excellence. That's what virtue is. But literally, virtue means it's describing something uh, that is is properly fulfilling its purpose. True virtue, if you have virtue, it's something that's properly, for, pro, properly fulfilling its purpose. And what do I mean? Well, the virtue of a knife is to cut. Right? So if a knife is sharp and it cuts, then that knife has virtue. The virtue of a horse is to run or to be strong. That's the virtue of a horse. Having virtue is, is doing the thing that you were created to do and doing it well. If you do what you're called to do and do well, then you have virtue. That's why oftentimes we say, you know, if, you, if a young man or a woman saves himself uh, till marriage, we say that they have virtue. They've kept their virtue. Why? Because they have done what they're supposed to do. That's the idea of virtue. So what is your purpose as a Christian? If you are to fulfill the purpose which you've been called, the purpose that God created you, to have virtue, what is your purpose? And many of you might be thinking, well, okay, it's to glorify God. Well, yeah, that's true, right? But it's more than that. How do you glorify God? That's the question you should ask. To fulfill your duty, you must know your duty. And I'm going to give you a helpful hint. Scripture has given us sometimes key little indicators all throughout Scripture that whenever you find them, pay attention to them because it's giving you information. And so I'm going to give you this uh, big key word so they ever see it. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and... And speaking of Christian's job, it says you are called to do something. That is speaking about what your purpose is as a Christian. Anytime you are reading a scripture and, it says, and there's an instruction or Jesus is talking or it's an apostle and he says you are called to do this. When you see that call, a little, little you know, green light, think about the sermon, a little green light will go off. Oh, he's about to tell me something that I'm meant to do. And then if I'm not doing it, I'm not fulfilling my purpose. So pay attention and when you're reading a scripture and when you're doing your quiet times, look for that word called. In 1 Peter, uh, I was thinking 1 Peter is a good place uh, for this. We studied, a pastor went through 1 Peter um, a few months ago. But 1 Peter, one of the main themes of 1 Peter is talking about what the calling of a Christian is. What is the calling? What is the purpose of a Christian? And he, and he discusses the topic a number of times. So uh, we're going to spend just a little time in there. So just flip a couple pages over to 1 Peter and we'll study a few verses there. We 
we look for the word called, and obviously in every instance it's not meaning that. The word called can mean different things. But when you look at the context, if it's giving you instruction about your life, that's a good indicator. And we'll begin in 1 Peter 1, chapter 14. Peter writes here in 1 Peter 1.14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the first thing that Peter says in 1 Peter is that God has called you to be holy like he is holy. So to be able to fulfill your virtue as a Christian, you must be holy. The word holy means set apart, different from the world. As a Christian, your calling is to not obey the lust of your flesh. As a Christian, you are not to do what is right in your own eyes or what you think is good. But you are to live according to the righteous law of God. And again, if you remember from last week, God has given you the tools to be able to do that. Because it's not easy. Living the Christian life is not always easy. But we are to strive to do that. You as a Christian are to fulfill your calling by being holy, striving for holiness, doing what God would require you to do and not what the world would require you to do. We often see in the Old Testament, uh, through the people of Israel, that after they wouldn't have a leader, it was said then the people did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, God would judge them. Because unfortunately, what is right in our own eyes typically is uh, according to our sinful lusts and desires. We should always... always, um, Check to see what we think is right according to the scripture because it is our authority. So the first thing Peter says is you as a Christian, you are called to be holy. Moving down just a few uh, verses into chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter. Peter writes again and he says, But you, speaking Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter continues and he says that you are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Another duty, another calling for you as a Christian is to proclaim the gospel. That is why God called you. He saved you. He brought you into His kingdom. And one of the purposes that He did that is so that you can proclaim His word, His name, to glorify Him both in word and deed. This is not just a job of pastors, but all of believers. And I, and I hear this from time to time, I'll be honest with you. Many people say, well, you know, Pastor James, I know I should share the gospel, but I just don't really think that's my spiritual gift. I'm not really comfortable with it. I, I, I'm kind of like, I'd rather be a behind-the-scenes type of person. Well, in a sense, that's kind of like a, a candle saying, well, you know, I don't really, I'm not really cut out to being um, lit and letting the whole room be filled with my light. I, I'm more just kind of for decoration. So I, I just want to be in the back. And I, and I know some candles are meant for decoration. But, you know, ultimately they're meant so that they can be lit and light the whole room. Oftentimes they have fragrance, so they, their fragrance fills the whole room. And it wouldn't make sense for a candle to say that. And it doesn't make sense for you as a Christian to say, well, I don't really want to proclaim the gospel. God has called you to proclaim the gospel. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to grab a soapbox and go to the street corner and be like those guys downtown. You know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, if I saw one of you, I'd probably join you. Like, wow, convict me, you know. But no, you know, preaching the gospel, proclaiming comes in many forms. It's looking for those instances. It's sharing at work. It's, it's living a, an example for your children, for your neighbors, for your community, and giving God the glory with your life. So you as a Christian are called to be holy, but you're also called to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the glory of Christ. Okay, moving down a few verses to chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writes again, and he says, For to this you have been called. Okay, take note. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So he goes and he says, This is what you've been called. You've been called to suffer. You've been called to suffer. And you might think, Well, that's kind of weird. I, I don't like this one. Uh, the whole thing, I can work on that. Okay, proclaim the gospel. I might be a little uncomfortable, but whoa, suffering. I don't, I don't want anything like this. Well, look into it, and it says that Christ set an example for us. Christ suffered as an example. And why did Christ suffer? Christ suffered because he taught righteousness, because he was holy. 
You see, if you fulfill the first two callings, being holy and proclaiming the light, this third one will inevitably follow because people are going to react against it. People don't like hearing about their sin. People don't like when they see you doing the right thing. And so oftentimes, suffering is going to result. People are going to persecute you. People are going to make fun of you. People are going to mock you. Sometimes uh, things, bad things might happen to you at work. This is all a result, but it's okay because you've been called to it. This is not talking about misery. It's not talking about looking for suffering. Christians shouldn't go looking for suffering. But if you do suffer for being holy and for proclaiming the name of Christ, well, then it's okay because God has called you to this. And remember, God's promises that when you do this, you give Him glory. And it's just temporary. And that if you're suffering for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed. So all this is part of virtue. Being holy, proclaiming the name of God, and then if you suffer, that's okay. That's part of your calling. Continuing on just a bit, in chapter 3, verse 9, I told you there's a number of these in 1 Peter. Peter writes in 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you might attain a blessing. So, in addition to being called to be persecuting, God says, but when you're persecuted, you are not to return evil for evil, but you return it with good. You're to bless, you're not to curse. It's not your job to repay evil. Scripture makes it clear. God says, you know, it is mine to repay, and we can trust in that. Returning evil for evil, that's the, that's the doing of the world. But for Christians, we trust in God. Because you know what? God sees. God sees what's going on. And He says we're to bless. And why does He say we're to bless? Well, just pop down a couple verses later in, in verse 11. From 9, He says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, the thing is, is that when we repay evil, when we pay good for evil, God sees us. And God is watching. And when we pay good for evil, God hears our prayers. He knows what's going on. He knows your situation. He's allowing it to happen. But He wants you to glorify Him by still taking the high road. By still setting an example. You know what? When Christ was on the earth, He did nothing wrong. And yet people beat Him and spit on Him and then crucified. Yet He opened not His mouth. Why? Because that was the will of God. And it's the will of God for you to repay good when you have evil cast on you. And we know that God is a just God and He will repay all. He will judge all for their sins and evil towards you. And we can trust and rest in that. And so finally, uh, flipping just to chapter 5, verse 10 in First Peter, he kind of does a, a summary of the calling. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says... And after, you, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, you know what, Christian? You are called to endure. You're called to endure when it feels like you can't go on anymore. Because God has strengthened you. And he has given you very precious and wonderful promises. God did not create you as a Christian and call you into his kingdom so that you will fail. He called you to endure. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but that's what you were made to do. And so he says, you are to be holy and you are to proclaim my name. And then you may suffer, but don't repay the evil that was given to you with evil. Repay it with good. And even after you've suffered for a while, just endure it. And in so doing, I am going to strengthen you. I am going to sustain you. He will restore and confirm so that in the end, we will enter into His glory. We have been called to into, in, into His kingdom. What a wonderful blessing that is. It makes me think of that. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure you saw it. When I was a kid, I used to see those Timex commercials. I think it was John Cleese. And it was Iron Man, you know. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And every time they'd have it like being run over with a car or put in the laundry and they takes it out and it still ticks, right? Well, sometimes that's what Christian life feels like, right? Sometimes it's like we're, we're getting the run through. We're getting stepped on. People are beating us up. We're dirty. They're not taking care of us. Yet we're, we're to keep on going and persevering because that's what we were made to do. This is what it means to have Christian virtue, to fulfill the purpose you were designed for. 
Now you might be saying, oh, well, Pastor James, is that all? You're only on the first characteristic. How am I supposed to remember all this? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's difficult. But um, follow Peter's train of thought. You can flip back to 2 Peter now. We'll, we'll remain there the rest of the time. Because it is hard. That's a lot to ask. But you have to understand that it's a process. You're not going to be spiritually mature the day after you become saved, or a year after, or two years after. Right? That's why some of the most spiritually mature people we know have been Christians for many, many years. Because it takes time. It's a growing process. And as you grow, Peter continues this. And he says, going back to verse 5 in Second Peter 1, he says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge. And that's the second quality. Knowledge. Because thinking about being a virtuous Christian can be overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming. But if you're overwhelmed with that, that's the place that you should be. That's the place that God wants you to be. As a matter of fact, if you're not overwhelmed by trying to be a virtuous Christian, then maybe you don't have the right perception of about your sin and, and the struggles you're going to face. You might need to examine your life and say, wow, this is going to be hard. Because that, it's at this place of being overwhelmed and not knowing if you can do it that God wants you to. Because at that, it's at that place that you will learn to turn to Him and to trust in His strength and to trust in His knowledge. And it's when you turn to the Lord and not depend on yourself, but trust in Him to help you overcome things, that's when you start to succeed. That's when you start to mature as a Christian. And we can all see this. We see mature Christians. When you describe a mature Christian, one of the things that first comes to your mind is like, wow, they really trust the Lord in all things. They're not depending on themselves. And that's the place that God wants you to be at. That's the place that you need to be at to grow spiritually. When you grow in virtue, you also grow in knowledge. And it's a lot, I know. It's kind of like, you know, when you're in second grade, think about this. If you're in second grade and you show up on the first day of math class, you go into the class and on the board there's some uh, long division question or some question with fractions in it. You're kind of like, what is that? How am I supposed to be able to do I don't even know my times tables. You know, I just barely learned my numbers a couple of years ago. You know, if you're a homeschooler, then this is probably no problem. But, you know, if you're like me, I go into second grade, see, if I were to see a question like that on the board, I'd be overwhelmed. Right? But then you start with the basics, and you go, and you learn your times tables, and you learn your short division, and then you learn your long division, and sooner or later, after, whether it's that year or the years go on, you finally learn your long division and fractions and you get to that point but then after you get to that point you might come into class one day and then you look to the board and there's some sort of quadratic formula or, or abstract algebra and you're like now what what is that I don't really like math in the first place and I first finally started to get the hang of it and now there's something new that I don't understand well living your life as a Christian it, it works the same way except you don't necessarily have to know math so don't worry but you build on the knowledge you grow steadily. You're not expected to, to, to understand and do the, the hardest things and, and endure the most difficult things and have all the answers right away. But you are to be in continually learning and growing in your knowledge so that after time you will be able to do those things. You will have the knowledge. You're to gain knowledge and then build off of it. So as you strive for virtue, you're going to succeed at times, you're going to fail at times, but you're to gain knowledge from those experiences. And the knowledge that Peter is speaking here is not just head knowledge. So if you don't know abstract formulas, that's okay in math. What he's talking about is not just knowledge, but also heart knowledge, experience knowledge, practical wisdom. You're to grow in practical wisdom. You're to learn how to distinguish good from evil. You're to learn from past experiences and trials. These are funny. Sometimes in life, you seem like you have the same type of trial over and over again. Well, if you start experiencing this life, you know, maybe take a step back and say, man, maybe God is trying to teach me something and He's just not getting it into my brain. What is God trying to teach me? Where am I failing? Where, where do I continue to sin? That's the kind of knowledge that you're to grow in. So that the next time around, when that same type of trial comes in, you're like, ah, it's no sweat. I may not like it, but I know how to endure this. I know how to give God the glory for doing so. And students, let me encourage you. And I know this is, you always hear this kind of thing and you never like hearing you, but this is why, uh, this is an excellent reason to listen to your parents. Okay? Yes. Right? Listen to your parents. Right? They, they don't necessarily always have all the answers, but the reason why they're telling you things is because they've experienced life. 
They've been through what you have. They might not have been every specific situation, but the Bible tells us, tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. It says that in Song of Solomon and it, uh, in Ecclesiastes, sorry. And uh, it's meaning that things change, but ultimately the principles remain. And so listen to your parents. They're just trying to tell you, not just so they can boss you around, usually, or because they're trying to get on your case, but it's because they see your situation and they recognize, hey, I've been through that. I've experienced that, so let me give you some wisdom and knowledge. And you can never stop learning. You know, I'm, here I am, I'm uh, in my late 20s, I'm still going to my father for stuff. I'm still going to my mother for stuff. Because they've been, they have experience and they have knowledge that I want to have. And your parents are only doing that so that you have maybe inside a knowledge that they didn't have when, you were your, when they were your age. Listen to your parents, listen to godly people that you respect and seek to gain in wisdom. But also understand that knowledge and wisdom, they don't come by accident, typically. They're not just going to hit you in the brain. Oftentimes, you need to purposefully want to grow. That's why when you, you should strive to read Scripture, but don't just kind of read it and then put it away. Think about what you were just learning. When you go through a trial, think about how you needed to grow spiritually. So the next time, you'll be prepared. Because oftentimes, it's easy to go through life, and it's easy to read, and yet, you're not really paying attention. You're not trying to learn. Study with purpose. Oftentimes, a wonderful way to gain knowledge is to teach others. So for many of you, you know, if you, you want to go back to the basics and learn some of the fundamentals of the faith, you know, desire to teach a small Sunday school class or have a, a women's Bible study. You don't have to have all this knowledge. Teach something basic so that as you're studying to teach, you gain that knowledge and it solidifies us. And we've all experienced that. Anytime if you have to tutor someone, you have to know it. And so you study and you know it better. So Peter says, add knowledge to your virtue. And then he continues on and he says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge and with knowledge self-control. As you grow in knowledge, you become better trained for the Christian life. You have insights into spiritual things. And as you do this, it's very important that you learn self-control. This is one of the key elements to growing as a Christian. This is one of the key elements of growing as a Christian. And we see that through, uh, throughout Scripture. If you recall back um, over the past year when I was going through Titus, I mean, self-control was one of those things that was commanded for everyone. Women, men, elders, young people, old people, young men, young women, old men, old women. Self-control was the constant thing in all of those. And if you are to grow and to be a spiritual mature Christian, you must learn self-control. If you learn self-control, you will be able to be holy. You'll be able to endure those trials and suffering. You'll be able to honor the Lord in mighty ways. Because self-control is something that the world doesn't understand. They just do what they want, whatever it feels good. But you as a Christian are to control yourself into living the Christian life. Into being obedient to God's words and His commands. Much of our sin comes from not controlling ourselves, Especially when we know we should. Oftentimes we sin and we look back. It's like, I knew what I was doing. I knew I should have controlled myself, but I just didn't. I lost my temper. Or I thought things that I shouldn't have thought, but I could have stopped it. True knowledge will lead to self-control. When you gain a knowledge, when you gain an understanding of who God is, His holiness, when you gain an understanding that God is everywhere, that He knows your thoughts, that He's strengthening you, when you gain the knowledge that you are fighting a spiritual battle and there are souls at stake and it's not a game, then you learn self-control because you know it's serious. It makes me think of a, of a soldier in battle. He needs to have self-control. He needs to hear and follow instructions from his commanding officers and, and, and do things and control himself to, to do things that, that his fear and fatigue and anxiety or everything is telling him not to do. Don't run on that battlefield. There's bullets flying. There's bombs. I, it's natural not to run, but he needs to control his emotions and do it and follow his orders. Why? Because victory depends on it. And oftentimes in life, because of our sin nature, because of our struggle, things are going to be telling you, don't do this. Don't, don't do what you're supposed to do. But you need to control them and strive after them. So you may gain spiritual victory. Victory depends on self-control. So to your knowledge, add self-control. And Peter continues, and he's, he's giving us this list, and he's giving us a specific list so that we can check them off. And we're not going to always be perfect to them all the time, 
But those times where we're weak, we remind ourselves of them and, and work towards them. He says, and from and virtue add knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and with self-control steadfastness, or persevere. Persevere. And the word steadfastness is not really used in our common vernacular. And you, you know, it's like when I'm studying for tests, I'll just be steadfast. I mean, the only time usually we use it is if we're singing some old hymn or a praise song. And sometimes, like, what does that mean? Well, it, it can mean to persevere, but it, it means something a little more specific than that. It, it's talking about, uh, it's a temper of mind. It means that you, you're unmoved by stress or difficulties. That some sort of uh, situation or trial doesn't crush you. You persevere, but it's talking about having the proper mindset. You're purposely going into it, and you're patient, you're steadfast. Whatever's happening, you're not letting it affect you. That's what steadfastness is. That's what this means here. And as a Christian, you are to have a proper attitude in life. So much of life depends on the outlook that you have. Once again, it's like the the glass full or glass empty type of thing. As a Christian, you are to have a godly perspective in all things. And this is not referring to being stoic or emotionless. This is not referring to being like Eeyore. Oh, ho, hum, woe is me. I'll just endure this trial. God must want me to do it. You know. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about enduring something with joy. With an underlying joy. It's not a false happiness. It's not, obviously, if something terrible happens to you, you know, and you come to church and people see you all happy and smiling, that's going to be weird. People can sense false happiness. No, it's talking about a real grounded joy. But it's not always just, you know, smiling and living life happy. No, you know what? Christian life is hard because sin is difficult to overcome. And there's hard and terrible things that happen to us all, whether you're a Christian or not. And God doesn't expect you to have this false happiness. Christ certainly wasn't happy when they were flogging him. But he had this underlying joy that he was pleasing his Father. And that as a Christian, should be your attitude as well. That you, whatever happens, you're trusting in the will and in the goodness of God. And that you're not crushed by difficult circumstances. But you have joy knowing that, you know what, I'm being used as a tool for God. And this may be hard. I may not like this, but I have joy knowing that it's only temporary. And when I do this, God is using me for His namesake, and I am blessed. That's what having being steadfast means. So he continues on and he says, and with steadfastness, you add godliness. You might be thinking, whoa, godliness, James, I, you mean, aren't all these things a part of godliness? First I have virtue and that's this big thing, I don't know how I'm going to control. Now I'm adding virtue and godliness, this is just too much today. Well, uh, indeed, again, that's the kind of place you want to be, trusting in the Lord and growing day by day. And indeed, all these things are a part of godliness. But what Peter has in mind here specifically, this godliness he's referring to, is a reverence for God. As you grow in faith, as you grow in virtue and knowledge, and you understand more about God, and you're, you're, persevering, you're persevering through life situ- uh, circumstances and situations, you are to grow in a reverence for God. Because you start to see the type of person that you are, that you're a sinner and that you deserve punishment. And the more you study and the more you gain in the knowledge of God, the more you start to see how holy and wonderful and awesome He is. This word in the Greek, when it's translated into Latin, it's where we get our word piety or pious. It's understanding of, of, of just somebody who's always thinking about God. God is always on their lips. Their discussions always want to be about God. They're always living for God. And we know people like this. You know? And it's not meant to be in an annoying way. It's meant to be like, wow, they really love God. And they really want to do His word. Because when you come, become steadfast and grow in knowledge, you start to have a practical awareness of God in every aspect of your life. It's so easy to wake up in the morning and not even think about how God's working you in that day. But when you endure trials and when you grow in godliness, you start to say, wow, God, you, you are working in every aspect. You have me at this job for a reason. You have me, uh, you've given me these kids for a reason. And so let me glorify you in every aspect of, of my life. He's always around you and you're mindful of Him and so you want to honor Him in all that you do. And this is a godly person. And we've all seen people like this who, wow, everything they do, they want to honor God. They live for Him, their family, their work. Let me ask you, do people say this about you? Do people, when they see you, say, wow, that person is a godly person? We are to add this to our faith, to be godly, to make a difference, 
for the Lord and the world by words and actions, by proclaiming Him. By proclaiming Him. And the more you think about God, the more you pray and revere His holiness, the more you trust in Him. This is how you grow in, in, in godliness. It brings about a, a fear of sin in our life. A fear of, of facing the Lord in judgment. And, and Jonathan Edwards was this kind of guy. He wrote a, a number of, of resolutions, and, and one of his resolutions was resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. In other words, man, if you're going to die and see the Lord within the hour, what, has, what have you been spending your life doing? And Jonathan Edwards was constantly aware that that could be the case because, you know what, each of us here, this could be our last hour. We don't know when our time is. We, the Lord could be coming back in five minutes. And so we are we, we to be godly. We have a, a reverence for His Word. We are to have a fear of sin. That's what godliness is. But more than that, it, it's, it, it brings reassurance and peace. We know that He is always with us. We, we, we are trusting in Him. No matter what happens to us, even if something bad, we know, okay, Lord, it was Your will, and I trust in that. That's what godliness is. If you have a godly mindset, you will sin less and honor Him more. And continuing on as we come to a close, He says, And with godliness you add brotherly affection. The Greek word here is Philadelphia. We've all heard of this, right? Brotherly love, brotherly affection. And it's talking about the love of, of brothers in between, caring brothers. Sometimes they say the love of brothers. It's like, wow, if you would have seen my house when I was a kid, you know, lots of fighting, you know. But it was fighting with love. Three boys, yes. But, but that's what it's talking about. You know, a love between brothers who they would give up anything. Sacrificial love. And this is fitting to follow godliness because if you revere God, then you should respect men. Because men are created in the image of God. Right? You, you care about His creation. You care about His creation. You care about those He has created. God has been kind to you, and so He has called you to be kind to others. And the New Testament is full of this kind of instruction. Thinking about others more important than yourself. Caring for needs. Being tender-hearted and thoughtful. That's to classify you as a Christian, and that's what you're to add to your faith. Thinking about others. The more you think about God and the more you think about others, the less you're going to think about yourself. And that's typically one of our biggest problems, is right? Pride. Me, me, me. But when you're thinking about God and godliness, and you're thinking about others and brotherly affection, the more you will honor God and the more you will grow in Christian character. And in fact, in, in 1 John, in 1 John 4.20 states, that the one who says, I love God, yet hates his brother, is a liar. For if he does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? So in other words, he's saying, look, if you're hating your brothers and you're not treating others, then you know what? You don't really love God. Because God has loved you and he's cared for you and has been kind to you. And so you should be kind to others. And then Peter naturally flows into the last one, which is love. Love. You add to brotherly kindness love. To grow in Christian character, church, it begins with faith and it ends with love. And Peter kind of puts the whole package. If you have love, then you will be able to do much for his kingdom. John thirteen thirty five says, By this all will know you are my disciples, Jesus speaking, if you have love for one another. The world sees your love towards one another, church. And they're amazed at it. Why? How? How can you love people you don't even know? How can you care for people that you haven't even that, that have been evil to you? How could you do that? That's how they'll know you're a Christian. This separates true Christians from false Christians. By love. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he passionately states, he says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but of not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic power... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but not love, I gain nothing. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. It's because of God's love that you can be saved. 
It's because of God's love that you're conformed into His nature because He's loved you. It's not a, well, if they love me, then I'll love them mentality. Christ addresses this. He says, if you love those who just love you, what reward is there in that? Don't, don't even the tax collectors and sinners do that? The world loves people who love them. They're going to see a difference in you if you love each other and love them, even when they don't love you. This love is unconditional and it's desiring the highest good for others. And when you do it, you give God glory. Because you love God too. And you want to be about His business. And His business is growing you into Christians of character to glorify Him on earth. Through this instruction, Peter commands that you live a life of character. He commands this. He says, add. And in the Greek, that's an imperative. It's not a choice. It's not, if, well, if you feel like it or get around to it. No. You are to be expected to doing these things. Strive to learn them. Depend on other Christians to help you keep accountable, to pray for you, to build you up. And if you do, you'll live a life of Christian character that is pleasing to God and will bring mighty results for His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, as we, we come before You, Lord, we recognize our, our weakness. We recognize our, our frailty and our sinfulness. But we know that for those who have believed in You, You have forgiven us of our sin and You have strengthened us so that we might be able to obey You. Lord, we thank You for Your grace in our life. We thank You for using us in Your kingdom. Oh, how we are so unworthy of that. We look forward to the day when we rejoice with You face to face when all the tears are wiped away, when there's no more suffering or trials. But until then, we ask that you would give us the strength to endure, that we would glorify you in our homes and our workplaces, Lord, that the world would see a difference in us and glorify your name, that you would bring many to your kingdom through us. Father, we await await, uh, the return of your Son and we eagerly anticipate glorifying him in person. And we ask, Lord, that even this week, we would live in a way that is growing um, in a character like Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.